Would you open your Bibles one more time and then keep them open at, at our passage for today? It comes to you from 1 Kings chapter uh, 17. We're continuing our study of an amazing intervention um, in the life of this widow, the widow of Zarephath. 1 Kings chapter 17. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't look up the um, page number in the Pew Bibles. Does anybody have it? 299. Thank you. If you're using a, a red pew Bible, it's on page 299. There are black pew Bibles out there as well. While you're turning there, let's just remind ourselves, we started in the middle of the story. I know I caused some confusion last week uh, by jumping back to the first of the story. We started in the middle and saw this amazing man who absolutely got brought to his knees. And we had to ask ourselves some really hard questions. We had to, to ask ourselves, what is it? This is... A, this is one of the top three, right, in, 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 in followers of God, Moses, Elijah, Jesus. Um, what does it mean, God, that he absolutely crashed and burned? And, and what did God do to restore him? Then we, then we stopped there for a second. We left that hanging there saying, our emotional and physical health is is just as important as our spiritual health. Our spiritual health assures us our salvation, but, but we are being formed into the image of Jesus in our very soul, our mind, our will, and our emotions. And much of Christianity has, has left out the mind and the will and the emotions, like suddenly, all of a sudden, the spirit being will, will exist for eternity by itself. Do you remember what happens at the resurrection? Right? Your soul and your spirit and your body are all reunited. Every time we study this, uh, people go, oh, I wish I'd taken better care of my body, right? Well, don't fear, because God's going to resurrect this body, right? Praise God. Praise God He's going to resurrect this body. Um, but at the same time, it's important to, to um, recognize that God cares about your soul as well. He's made your spirit alive in Jesus Christ. That's how you can communicate with God. But God cares about your mind. He cares about your, your emotions. He cares about your will. And so we've been studying. We went back in the story to kind of see the call of God in Elijah's life. And, and we saw that, that God called him out to speak into the culture, just like God is calling us out to speak into our culture. It's amazing, but that at this time in Israel's life, the culture was very much like ours. Amazing persecution for followers of God. Amazing uh, shifts, uh, tectonic shifts in, in worldview that uh, are antithetical to the, to the sovereignty and, of, of God. And so uh, both in Elijah's time, again with the Roman culture in Jesus' time, and, and now in our culture with Western culture, at the same time we're facing very similar situations. So God's looking for men and women who will stand in the midst of culture. He's looking for men and women who out of the wholeness and the overflow of what God is doing in their life will boldly speak, even if it means their death, will boldly speak truth into a culture that so needs to hear the truth, that will boldly speak gospel. The kingdom of God is here into people's lives. And, and just like Elijah was called to that, so we are called to that. So we're assuming that maybe as we study his life and, and what got in his life, that we can learn things about our lives as well. That's the whole premise of what we're doing. 
And we saw that God challenged him to speak boldly into the life of the culture and say, I want to break your idolatry. I want to break your trust in this false god, Baal, who provides your rain. I want you to speak to them, Elijah, and to say to them that it's not going to rain or even have dew on the ground until I say so. And we, and we explored how, how amazingly courageous that is. Uh, but Elijah did it. And then we saw that, that God said, in the midst of this drought now that you just called, Elijah, I'm going to place you, I'm going to show you my love for you. And he placed him back by his hometown. Tishbe is, not, is on, actually, the brook Kareth. He placed him back near his home people in his hometown. And he placed him by this, uh, this brook. And, and, and he fed him miraculously by the ravens. And, and, and he, he gave Elijah that, that second level of confidence that um, God is able to provide if you obey him, if you speak boldly into the culture, if you live the life, God will provide for you, right? But, but God is growing him. He's discipling him. He's, he's helping him to come to a deeper and deeper faith. And so, so then God allows, or if not causes, the brook to dry up, right? And we saw that there was this three-day window, uh, this crisis of faith in Elijah's life where he has, to, he has to say, what do I believe about God? God, do you care about my circumstances? And we saw that God spoke into those circumstances. And, and, and basically it was a good news, bad news thing. So the good news is, is I've got, I've, I've provided a widow for you who's going to provide. Yeah, yeah. Ever think that, um, God couldn't care about me. At this stage in my life, what could God possibly do with me? God takes this non-believing widow and, and uses her to bless and save his, his voice, his, spoke, his spokesperson. That's the good news. Bad news is it's 75 miles away and it's in Jezebel's backyard. Some of you, I confused you last week because you're thinking Elijah hasn't met Jezebel yet and he has. That whole time he's by the brook Kareth, Jezebel is searching for followers of God. She's searching for them and putting them to death. We see later in the story that, that one faithful man, Obadiah, was protecting him. He was hiding a hundred prophets of God in a cave um, Jezebel systematically searching out for them. So he's very familiar with who Jezebel is. And God says, okay, I'm going to strengthen your faith. Are you ready for this? I'm going to put you right in her backyard, seven miles from her palace. I'm, uh, I'm going to put you there. And so Elijah went. He had a choice. Like, we have a choice. He had a choice. And he went to Zarephath on the coast. And we saw last week this amazing story of how God... Provided for. Remember the ravens and the, and the brook? He provided not only for Elijah now. Remember last week we took a quantum leap forward. It's not just about you. It's about the lives of the people that you touch. And he saved not only Elijah by this widow, but he saved her and her son. And you can hear the music swelling and the credits are beginning to roll. And you're going, wow, what an amazing story of faith. But God's not done yet, beloved. He's not done yet. Pick up the story with me. Uh, at verse 17 of First Kings. After this, which is, which is the writer's way of saying in a relatively short period of time, after uh, Elijah had come to the widow, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. 
And she, the widow, said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? Wow. By the way, it's, it's, uh, the word order is differently, but in the original language, it's exactly what Jesus said to Mary when he was, remember we saw this a few months ago, when he was at the, uh, excuse me, he was at the wedding, and Mary says, um, uh, Jesus, the wine's run out, remember that? He says in the literal translation would say, what do I have to do with you, woman? <laughs> and uh, we didn't do that passage on Mother's Day. <laughs> Um, he says, she says that to Elijah right here. The same word structure. What do I have to do with you? I'm done with you. I'm done with you, man of God, she's saying. You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Any questions about her worldview? Um, uh, she, she believes that God is out to punish her. And Elijah's never made a mention of sin in her life that we know of. There is no recollection, there's no record here of, of him saying anything about this. But you see, in the midst of the trial, what's really in there is coming out, right? God hates me. And you came to remind me of that. Thank you. Right? Um, wow. And, and when none, of us, none of us judge her for this because she's just lost her son. And, but, but crises like this bring out whatever's inside of us. And Elijah says to her, verse 19, Give me your son. And he took him up from her arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged. Can you picture this? I don't know how big this guy is. He's probably less than 13 years old. Um, he carries this, this guy upstairs into the room that she had set apart for him. And Elijah cried to the Lord, Yahweh, my God. Have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Isn't that interesting? She declares it. And, and when the culture declares it, oftentimes the followers of God begin to question it. Right? We begin to question it. Have you brought this calamity upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times cried out to the Lord, Yahweh, my God, let this child's life come to him again. I'm stumbling. We'll continue in just a second, but I'm stumbling because I'm guessing that some of you have been in a situation like that too. Your whole understanding of who God is was, was tested, which is the same word, right, for temptation or trial, was tested. And, and, and you cried out, maybe even, even tried to do something physically. I'm not sure, honestly, what's happening here with Elijah laying himself on. He's not trying to do some magic. My temptation, this is Dave, not, not truth necessarily. My temptation is to believe that he was trying to say like Moses did before him, God, if you want to wipe them out, take me instead. I don't know for sure, but I'm not sure that but that in laying himself out, he's saying, let me die in this child's place. Tell me. Tell me you haven't thought that or felt that when you were facing those circumstances. But me, God, take me instead. But, but God is all about their good and his glory and your good, right? 
and your good. So he puts her in this situation. He puts her in this situation. But look. Look in verse 22. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. Oh, great. Yeah, he's Elijah. No, he's every man. He's every woman who risks believing, who risks speaking into the culture, who risks walking with God through a crisis of faith. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again. And he revived. So tempting to try and say what was going on there. Let's not get sidetracked with that today. We can explore that again, what was happening right there. But the reality was is that God gave that woman and Elijah the desires of their heart. <laughs> That's the, the verse, the theme verse for the kids on the weekend. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Elijah brought down the son from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him, same in his arms probably, delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. For all of you who have had to trust a loved one, um, you're in this exact same situation. Those of you who made the ultimate sacrifice and sent a warrior off the foreign land to do battles on behalf of our freedom and lost them. You're in the same place. What do you believe about God? What do you believe about eternal life? Elijah said, see, your son lives. Look at the woman's response and then we'll try and unpack this whole passage together. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh in your mouth is truth. Isn't that interesting? Remember we saw last week. If you're faithful, if, if, if you will respond to God, that's a big theme for today. We've got to respond. It's not just enough to give intellectual assent. We have to respond. Elijah had to do that three-day journey. He had to speak into the culture. If you will respond by faith in God, God will bless you richly and bless other people as a result. Now I know you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. These are the very words of God. Ah, thanks be to God. Yeah. Well, let's unpack it a little bit. I want to kind of um, bring it home to you for just a second. Because um, the reality is at some level, every one of us has experienced this. I want to, right off the bat, say, when we start to talk about pain and we start to talk about suffering and talk about grief, in a sense, when you talk about one person's suffering or one person's grief, you're talking about apples and oranges, right? There's not a universal pain scale. You know, when they're, you're in the hospital and they say, on a scale of 1 to 10, what's your pain, right? Um, well, some people can be having my level 11 pain on a scale of 1 to 10 and call it a 3, right? Translate that emotionally, right? That you can't cross-check. What I'm trying to say is, is that your loss is very real, even if it's not like someone else's loss. 
Our temptation is to discount it, to say that, that my grief or my suffering or my sorrow is nothing compared to what so-and-so had, right? Well, it's everything to God. It's everything to God. And so I want to just note right here at the beginning, if you want to take notes, I'm sorry not to project them with you here today, but I'll call them out to you. First thing I want to note is that everybody grieves. Everybody grieves. And, and you can't really judge one person's grief by another person's grief. We used to say when I was younger, we used to say puppy love is very real to puppies, right? You say, well, that's just puppy love. Well, no, it's very real. It's, it, it, for that person, it's very real. Grief. Grief is very real to those who are grieving. And, and I want you to add a thought here. Dot, dot, dot. Everybody grieves, even God. Even God. Wait a second, isn't he omnipotent and all powerful? Isn't he all these omnis? And, and they say, we are created in his image. And even if you can't backwards mask and say, well, if we grieve, then God must grieve, then God shows himself, right? Do you remember Jesus at, at, at um, Lazarus' tomb? He knew. He knew. In about three minutes, Lazarus is going to walk out of that tomb alive. And he grieved. He grieved at that point because, because he was completely God, yes, but he was completely human too. Do you remember Jesus when he, at Palm Sunday when he came to the edge of Jerusalem? Do you remember that? Everybody's going, woo-hoo! Uh, the Messiah has come. And, 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 and Jesus is weeping. He's weeping and he says, Oh, Jerusalem. How I've longed to gather you in my arms like a, a, a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would have none of it. Oh, Western culture. Oh, Evansville, how I've longed to gather you in my arms, but you'd have none of it. God grieves. It's probably good to take a moment. Again, I'm going out on a limb. Um, if you know, uh, have more understanding, help me out afterwards. But I, I, I was discerning the difference between sorrow and grief. And I don't want to make a federal case out of it because a lot of people use the words interchangeably. But, but oftentimes I notice that sorrow is, is what happens when, um, when we do something wrong. And Paul talks extensively about it. I want to say 1 Corinthians 7. He talks extensively about uh, uh, different kinds of sorrow. A worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow that brings repentance, right? That's why I associate sorrow with something that we have done. But I think that grief is something different. Grief is, is mourning a loss of relationship, not because of what you've done, but because someone else did. Does that make sense? Um, and God, who desperately desires to be in relationship with you, you know, who, who knows... When, when we turn our back to him and, and, and longs for us, God experiences that grief. So much so that, that Paul, what in, in Ephesians 4, would say, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, right? This is not just about innocuous sin. Well, this is victimless sin, right? Nobody else but me suffers, and I'm not suffering too much by this sin. Oh, someone else suffers. Someone else suffers. God suffers. Because he created you, he formed you. He set apart all your days before one of them came to be. And he misses you. 
He misses you. God grieves. Everyone grieves. But God grieves as well. And, and, and I want to go on and say another major point is to say no loss is insignificant. And, and because of that, we have to pay attention to loss. And I guess I want to talk for a moment. Um, this is not fair to say men and women because it crosses those lines. But it does seem that, that men are quicker to compartmentalize grief. I remember when, when Matthew was lost. And uh, 13 minutes, you know, not sure whether he drowned, whether he'd been kidnapped, and um, and I uh, and then and we found him, and I immediately put all that in this box, right? Women are spaghetti, men are waffles, right? I put it in that waffle box, and uh, I even said to my family at that point, because the media was arriving and the police were all over the place, I said, you know, let's not. Let this traumatize us. Let's not be marked by this the rest of our life. And there's some maybe um, common sense to that. It got us through that day. Um, but do you see what happens when you just bury those kinds of things? When you never let the impact of, of your sorrow and your grief and your pain uh, come home. Um, that's why we can have amazingly spiritual people who are emotionally... Um, handicapped because they won't risk allowing themselves to go there. So it's going to be important. Pay attention. Pay attention to grief. Now, when you hear the word grief, a lot of you think of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, don't you? Uh, You know that name? Have you ever heard that name before? She's the one who kind of identified five stages of grief, right? But I think it's fair to say, do you remember those stages? There are um, denial, first of all, and then anger, and then sometimes bargaining with God, right? And then depression, and then gentle acceptance, right? But what she's describing, I think, is, is a, a, a response if you don't pay attention to the grief, right? She's saying this is what's going to happen, and, and, it, and it's common sense. And, and many people experience those things. I'm not discounting that. I'm just saying, let's, as we said a couple weeks ago, let's walk into the night. Let's not run from the night, because we're going to be running from that the rest of our lives, right? How fast can you go around the world? But if you walk into the night, the sun comes up a lot sooner. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm laughing. My wife and I have a different strategy about what you do in a severe rainstorm. Her strategy is to um, hide under a bridge and wait it out. And I'm thinking, the faster I drive the sooner I get out of this rainstorm, right? And, um, and so we've had some, you know, we almost got caught in a tornado out there in Burnt Prairie, Illinois, because of my foolishness. But um, there is some wisdom to saying, let's not run from it. Let's not run from grief. Let's embrace it. Let's pay attention to it. Let's enter into it. Why? The third point, because unattended losses, unattended grief prevents us from walking freely with God and also with others. And also with others. And if we don't see ourselves, because it's harder to see ourselves in this, it's a lot easier to see other people, right? And, and, and to look in their lives and to, and to see in their lives the cost of not embracing the grief, of not dealing with it, of not risking bringing God into it. 
It prevents us from being able to, to relate to other people. There are taboo things. We're not going to talk about that. It's too painful, right? We're not going to go there as a family. We create whole uh, unwritten norms about what we'll talk about and what we won't talk about because we're protecting ourselves, trying to protect ourselves from the pain. And God instead, in both this woman's life and in Elijah's life, invites them to walk into it. So let's, let's flip over and say, I'm not going to go into Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's um, normative description of what people do when they don't enter into it. I want, I'd rather kind of go say, what can we do? How can we embrace that grief? I'm going to go even further and say, how can we, how can we grow through grief? Because here's my premise. I believe that God allows us these circumstances so that we will enlarge our souls. That we will increase the capacity of our minds and our wills and our emotions. So let's go there for a second. I'll end with that as well, but let's go there for a second. How do we grow through grief? The critical thing, I think, is to let grief enlarge your life. First of all, let it enlarge your hope. Let it enlarge your hope. If you had to say to that, about that woman what you think was her greatest hope as her son died right before her eyes, what would you... Because you've been there, right? I've been in funerals where I'm saying to the embalmed body, rise up. Our greatest hope was that that son would live, right? Her greatest hope. She dared not embrace it, right? Uh, instead, she, she went back to her old tapes because... Because a lot of us protect ourselves from hope. We don't want to get crushed again. We don't want to get crushed again. I'm trying to think of the movie that had um, uh, Jack Nicholas in it. I think it was, called, it was called Bucket List or something, where he kept telling the guy, don't embrace hope, right? Because you're just going to get... He kept telling Morgan Freeman, you're just going to get your hopes crushed. And a lot of us, whether consciously or unconsciously, don't hope. Now, what is hope? Hope is that, is that vision of a preferred future of this dream of, of, of life better, right? Um, life 2.0 instead. A, a, a new way of seeing. And, and, and the problem with going there in our minds is that if we don't get it on our time schedule, then, then our hopes are crushed and, and, and we don't want to experience that. So let grief enlarge your hope. But let's go beyond that. Uh, um, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says... Now, um, now, faith is, is the assurance of things hoped for, right? So hope is a critical part of this. Now these three abide, faith, hope, and love, right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Don't just let grief enlarge your hope. Let it enlarge your faith, your response to God and to his word. Let it not just affect your dreams. Let it affect your future. I think that loss often, often reveals our complacency. The people and things that we take for granted on a regular basis, right? You don't know what you have until you don't have it anymore, right? It reveals the things that we're, we're um, taking for granted. Let's be honest. We take God for granted, right? And just call on him when, when life gets out of our manageable control. As we saw earlier, God is a God who suffers and grieves. God goes with us 
into our grief and our loss and our pain. There's an amazing book. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Uh, Nicholas um, Wolsterstorff wrote it. It's about, um, it's about the loss of his teenage son. Uh, excuse me, he was 25-year-old uh, in a mountain climbing accident. Um, Wolsterstorff didn't have any, any explanations or answers for why God allowed a tragedy like that into his life. Who does, really, honestly? Who does? At one point, though, he um, walked into that grief and he got an amazing insight that he writes in his book. He says, through the prism of my tears, I have seen a suffering God. It is said of God that no one can behold his face and live. I always thought this meant that no one can see his splendor, his glory, and live. But a friend in my grief said to me, perhaps it meant that no one could see his grief. Oh my goodness. No one could see his sorrow and live. Or perhaps his sorrow is his glory. Perhaps his sorrow is his splendor. So enlarge, enlarge your view of God. Enlarge your faith in God. Because He's a God who knows what you're experiencing. He's a God who's gone before you. What did it say in Hebrews about Jesus? He learned obedience from the things that He suffered. Right? God knows your grief. He knows your pain and He's gone before you. In it. But secondly, God not only knows it, He speaks His Word into our grief. And we all have our favorite passages in the Bible, right? And, and, and we pull them out and they feed our souls, they nourish our souls. But there's about 99% more of the Bible that, that speaks into our grief as well. That speaks into our suffering as well. It's astounding to me. One person estimated that 50% of the, excuse me, 30% of the Bible as a whole and 50% of the Psalms are not happy, happy. They are, oh my God, where are you? What's Psalm 22? Why have you forsaken me, God? Right? They're laments. They're saying, God, why did you not do what I thought you would do? I thought I knew you. Right? And you responded so differently. God understands and he speaks to us in our grief. Through his word. That's why, that's why um, I've got two thoughts in my head. There are a lot of modern psalmists. And, uh, uh, and I love Facebook for that reason. There's reason, a lot of reasons why I don't like Facebook. Um, but, but once in a while, someone will post a modern psalm. They're not trying to be, you know, include it in 151th Psalm or something like that. They, they're speaking truth in, in poetic form. And it absolutely speaks to me. But I, I really want to encourage you that God has set apart 150 hymns, songs, prayers from people just like you and me. And they are brutally honest. Not for the faint of heart. But, but as you follow God into those psalms, you will experience that God who suffers and you'll, under, you'll discover that He understands your suffering as well and invites you out of it. Let the Word speak into your grief. Read the whole counsel of the Word of God. Um, uh, God will increase your capacity as you go along, but, but I read through the Psalms and Proverbs every month and through the Bible in a year just because I don't want to miss one of those obscure passages where, where I always read over it before and it was exactly what I needed for that time. I invite you to, to drink deep of God's Word. 
But also let grief grow your faith. As you read His Word, as you cry out to this God who suffers and grieves, let your knowledge, not your head knowledge, but your heart knowledge of God grow. And and let your trust or faith in God grow. Risk responding to Him. Risk responding to Him. Every time you see Elijah respond, God takes him to a new level. But if Elijah had stayed at Kareth that first year, I believe he would have died of thirst. Because God had laid out for him a future and, and he didn't take it. He wouldn't have taken it, but he did. Let your knowledge of God grow. Let your trust in God grow. And the only way you can grow trust is by risking it, right? By trusting him in the midst of that situation. Let your response grow. Remember what the women said to Elijah when her son was raised? Now I know that my knowledge has changed. Now, I'm not talking about my head knowledge because she's still... She was not of the people of God. Um, she didn't have all the theology. She didn't know anything about the Old Testament. Um, but she, God delivered him. God raised her son from the dead. And her knowledge of him was transformed as a result. Um, now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Now I know, God, that you are God and that your word is true. Help me feast. Let me feast on your word. I want to hit two more quick points and then we'll be done. Um, God doesn't give us grief just for us. Remember Elijah? Uh, he, he blessed this woman through it. Let grief enlarge your compassion for others. If passion is to enter into the suffering of others, right? Um, and we want to grow in our passion for God. I want to know God and I want to live for him. Um, let grief also enlarge your compassion for other people as well. This is where our memory verse comes in. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy. See, our knowledge has increased. We believe this about God who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. God act, the, the upshot of that is that God allows things into our lives so that we will see his glory when he responds and that we might comfort other people in those situations even if we haven't received our answer yet. Even if God hasn't revealed his glory yet. I know some of you have lost loved ones and, and you're not going to go home and pray that God raises them from the dead. But God has made a way to raise them from the dead, has he not? Comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another. And again, lastly, let let your soul grow as a result of grief. Recognizing just as you filled your soul like a balloon full of these trials and the suffering and this pain, it's stretching. Your soul is stretching. Many of you remember the story um, of, of Gerald and Linda Sitzer. Um, and I don't do this to out-suffer you. Don't go there for an instant. Um, I, go, I, I go here because in the midst of his suffering, he said something that absolutely rocked my world. Gerald and Linda um, had four children, uh, and they were going to one of the students' um, um, teaching projects, one of their school projects on an Indian reservation. And they took um, Gerald's mother and and uh, his uh, friend of the mother's as well in the car. They had a packed car. They're heading back, and you can see it coming, can't you? Um, a drunk driver coming the other way. 
They saw him. They tried to dodge him. Gerald was driving, right? Tried to dodge this drunk driver, and, a, and they have a head-on collision. Is that right? One, two, three generations of his loved ones died right before his eyes. In the middle of an Indian reservation, uh, far from any help, he had to sit there and watch his mother and his wife and two of his children die. And, and how do you deal with that? I mean, he could have been crushed and he could have crawled into a hole and never come out, but he didn't. He actually wrote a book about his descent into the abyss of grief and, and the incomprehensible pain that changed his life. It's called a grace disguise, how the soul grows through loss. How the soul grows through loss. Can I just quote him? He says, catastrophic loss by definition precludes recovery. That's the bad news. You'll never recover. You will never recover. Right? You'll never be like you were before. No, it transforms us or destroys us, but it will never leave us the same. Gerald Sitzer writes, there's no going back to the past. But it is not therefore true, he writes, that, be, that we become less through the loss unless we allow the loss to make us less, grinding our soul down until there's nothing left. Loss can also make us more. He says, I did not get over my loved ones. I still have not gotten over my loved ones. Rather, I absorbed the loss into my life until it became a part of who I am. Grief, I love this line, took up permanent resonance in my soul and enlarged it, increased my capacity for God, increased my passion for God, and increased my compassion for others. The soul can grow larger through suffering. So um, it, it brings new meaning, doesn't it? Come on up, worship team. It brings new meaning when, when we say, bless the Lord, O my soul, right? Because God says, thank you so much. I receive that. But I want to enlarge your soul. I want to grow your soul so that you know me better. And so that you have greater compassion for those around you who also are suffering. If it's puppy love, it's puppy love, but they're still suffering, right? Uh, I want to increase your capacity to be more like me. And, and, and so I ask you, and I, I did not mean today in any sense to tread on those of you who are going through amazing experiences. But there's a 100% chance, should Jesus tarry, that we will go through this, right? We will go through the loss of loved ones. We will go through amazing tragedy, and we will die. These bodies will die should Jesus tarry, should he not return in glory in our lifetime. So the question is not whether those things will happen. The question is, what are we going to do when they happen? I beg you, enlarge your hope. Enlarge, enlarge your faith. Enlarge your trust in God's word. Enlarge your soul. Father, thank you. Thank you that you love us more than we could ever imagine. And thank you that you are seeking relationship with us. Wash over this room, would you, God? Wash over it right now where people are bleeding. I pray for your, your healing salve on their wounds. But, but, God, where people are saying, yes, I get it now, God. I want to know you more. And I want my life to be 
a blessing to you. God, help us respond. And we'll give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name.